Good morning, church family. Please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. My name is Rachel Rapp, and I have the honor of reading our scripture today from Matthew 25, 31 through 46. These words come to us recorded by human hands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and therefore they come to us today as the very word of God. So let's ready our hearts to hear together the word of our Lord from Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're here a couple weeks ago, we, we jumped into the book of Matthew 25. Just We're taking a short little break from Colossians, looking at Matthew for a few weeks. We're going back to Colossians uh, next week. Uh, but we're doing this to, to have this conversation about justice and mercy and, and what does it look like for us to be a church that blesses our city and, and pursues a, a city that is full of a God-reflective justice, that is full of a God-reflective mercy. In Matthew 25, it's a very interesting passage. The whole of Matthew 25, and it really goes back to 24, it, it's, it's this discourse that's all within the context 
And, and what's happening is Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going away. I'm going to be away from you for a while. He's preparing his disciples, but I'm going to come back. And how you live while I am away, that's what's important. How you live while I am away is, is a window to your soul. It's a, it's a window to your whole relationship with me. It's a window to whether or not you actually know and love me. And of course, as we see in this passage, there's this, this very clear calling to have concern for the least of these, my brothers. Yeah, I think that's an important thing for us to think about. You know, this, this effort of bless the city, this, this effort of engaging with the marginalized in our city, this isn't just a Christian hobby. This isn't just something that we do because it's fun for Christians to do stuff like that. Now, I mean, I believe this text is saying, you know, heaven and hell is at stake here. Your, your concern for the broken, for the marginalized, your, your ability to see them is so important. You know, two weeks ago, we looked at the first part. It's, it's very interesting that the, the preceding passage, if you were here two weeks ago, we looked at, is the parable of the talents. And some of y'all know that parable. It, it's this call to take what God has entrusted to you and steward it faithfully. I mean, it's the very preceding passage. It's just right before this. And so if, if the Lord entrusts something to you, be smart, be diligent, be shrewd, be wise, be hardworking. Go and put it to work so that, so that you can return back to the master more than what he entrusted to you. And then and right on the heels of that, we, we have this story about noticing the prisoner, the hungry, or the stranger. It's interesting how these two go together. If, if, if you were here two weeks ago, I gave you this two-by-two two grid, and I really think that it's a, it's a great little help. It's a, um, I think we got it on the screen here, yeah. You know, I, I said two weeks ago that, that Christians can tend to be passive. You know, I think so oftentimes we, we can kind of rest in, well, God's in control, rest in the sovereignty of God, which of course we, we do rest in the sovereignty of God but we also obey the commands of God. So we're not called to be passive. Our, our obedience is an active obedience. Our faith is an active faith. We're moving toward obedience in the, to the demands of Christ. And so we're, we're, we're always pushing away from being passive. And, and as we looked two weeks ago, toward this wise diligence, we, we should be hardworking. We should be smart with the things that God's entrusted to us. We, we should be shrewd. We, we should not be like the lazy and wicked servant who took what God entrusted him, who took what the master entrusted him and buried it in the sand. So we, on, the, on the horizontal line, we talked about moving away from passivity toward this kind of wise diligence. And, and I think we're gonna see this week is moving away from being unconcerned. You know, if you're, if you're here a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned the story of the Good Samaritan. And I said, you know, I'm sure that the priest and the Levite, the one who passed the, the man that was beaten and left for dead on the road, the priest and the Levite that passed him by, I'm sure that they were doing really good things, but yet they were so focused on whatever those things were that they were unconcerned. They, they missed this opportunity that God put right before him. So we're, we're called to move away from being unconcerned and toward compassion. And this is God-honoring stewardship. When, when we take what God's entrusted to us and we're wise and we're diligent and we're hardworking and when we have this heart for the broken, 
this heart for broken situations. This is, this is good stewardship. This is, this is stewarding our lives in a God-honoring direction. And this is really the hope for all parts of our lives, that in everything that God's entrusted to you, your time, your work, your energy, your family, you would steward it in, in, in this kind of a way. You know, if, if you, here, I'll just say it plainly. If, if you never use any of your time to go and serve other people without expecting anything in return, you're not a good steward of what God has entrusted to you. If, if, if you never, if your work is all about you, you kind of working up a ladder, you providing for yourself, if you, if you, know, if you don't see the work that God has given you as a means through which he is caring for others, as a means through which he is bringing justice and cultivating the world in a God-honoring direction, then you're not a good steward. This passage would say you're a goat. You know, if, if, you, if you spend all your money on yourself and don't realize that God's entrusted your money to you, yes, to meet your needs, but to channel it for the good of others, then you're not a good steward. So we, we gave you this two-by-two two grid. The, the other thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago, and I'm just reviewing these tools, we also talked about having a multi-directional approach to, to justice and mercy. And so on one side, our church, as a collective and as individuals that scatter, we pursue justice and mercy in all of these individual ways. So it's the volunteer that goes and works with Atlanta Mission and goes and helps the homeless person. That one volunteer regularly giving time to go and help one other person or a collection of other people. It's the person that gives their, uh, you know, beyond like organized church events, right? It's the person that just gives time and energy to serve their community or their school or their workplace in a faithful way. So pursuing justice and mercy, yes, is this individual, I'll call this kind of a grassroots level. But also, and I really believe this, We're also called to think about these in kind of systematic and holistic ways where the Lord's given us stewardship. And the amazing thing about this church is so many of the businesses, so many of the the government, the schools, the things that are really shaping culture, God's actually given you more influence in those places than you might think. You guys are teachers in schools. You, you work in these businesses that really help shape culture. You're, you're engaged in, in governmental life. How, how kind of from a top-down approach, from more of a systematic, holistic approach, are, are you called to steward your influence in those places toward bringing about a more just and whole and merciful and God-honoring society? God has given us all of these kinds of different stewardships, and, and I love the analogy last week that uh, Abe used. If you hear last week, you remember when Abe was talking about the difference between hot sauce and salt? And, and he said, you know, salt, what salt does is it flavors what's already there. It flavors what's already there. It doesn't, it doesn't destroy the taste of what's already there. It takes what's already there and it flavors it. And I want you to think about that. God has put you in different settings. You have different gifts. You have different talents. You have different resources. How is the gospel? How is your God-honoring stewardship? How is the call of Christ on your life flavoring that? What we often say is the Christian life is this. It's living the life that you're living as Jesus would live it. How would Jesus live your life? If Jesus was a teacher, if Jesus was an attorney, if he lived in your apartment complex, if Jesus you know, had children on your kid's sports team, 
How would Jesus salt that with the truth of his kingdom? And that's what we're called to do. That, that's exactly what the church is called to do. You know, the, the, the hope of Christ's covenant blessing the city is not that we effectively take on a half a dozen ministry projects around the city, though that's important. The hope of Christ's covenant blessing the city is that we as a church scatter faithfully and well in a God-honoring and Christ-centered direction. Yes, working one at a time where God gives us opportunity, but also when God gives us bigger stewardships to season those in a gospel-centered way also. You know, I, I always brag on Paige, but Paige, I, you know, she was a part of starting this ministry, Read Together ATL, and Becky Matthews, and Vicki Brink, and so many others have, have done such an amazing work with that. I know many of you volunteer with that. It's a literacy program for second graders. And, and, and what it is, is you just show up and you teach second graders sight words. It's, it's, it's this kind of bottom-up thing. But because Paige was there and was present, she got asked to be on the GO team of Boyd Elementary School, where we piloted the program. Because she showed up and was present in this kind of small way, God gave her actually this kind of influential role. We don't have a child at Boyd that we really shouldn't have been asked to do this job, but, but she was given a, a measure of influence because of her faithfulness in this small thing. Now, I give you these tools just to, to help you think about this, because if this is ever going to happen, it's not gonna happen by us saying, you know, here's your six opportunities to go and do something good. It's gonna happen by us having a posture of compassion and mercy for the city that we've been called to live in. And for us having a posture of diligence and wisdom and hard work in this city that we've been called to live in. So if last week, or two weeks ago rather, we spent most of our time in the previous passage, it's so interesting to me that these passages are right next to each other. If we look at the parable of talents calling us to this kind of um, wise diligence, then this week, we're gonna, we're gonna spend a lot of our time here. What is, what is God-centered, what is Christ-centered compassion looks like? And I think that's exactly what we see in Matthew 25. So let's get back to the text now. With the rest of the time I have, I wanna look at three things with you. Three things that we see in the text. The first is standing before Jesus. The second is seeing Jesus. And the third is loving Jesus. You know, these texts are so big. I mean, they're, they're so kind of, you know, in timesy. I mean, they're, it, when Jesus, it says, when the Son of Man returns in his glory, that's how it all starts. And look at how it ends. I mean, it ends in this very dramatic Way also, those will go away into eternal punishment, but the others into eternal life. It begins, this passage begins at the judgment seat of Christ. And what Jesus is doing there, and I think this is very important for us to realize, he is separating the sheep from the goats. He, he's creating a dividing line. He, he's creating this clarifying line of who are his sheep and who are of goats? And we see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. He's always drawing these clarifying lines. The wheat and the tear. The house built on the sand and the house built on the rock. The son who received his father's love, the son who rejected his father's love. And here, the sheep and the goat. He's always bringing this clarity to who is really my disciple. And you'll notice with all of these analogies that Jesus gives, it's hard to tell. 
It's kind of always hard to tell. I mean, the house on the rock and the house on the sand, you look at them both and you're like, those are both beautiful houses. It's only when the storm comes that you know which one is actually on the rock and which one's on the sand. The wheat and the tear, you, you look out in the field, you can't tell the difference. No, they have to be sifted. The, the, the sheep and the goats, so you're, you're out in the countryside, you look up on the hill and it's just a bunch of little white dots. You can't tell which one's a sheep or which one is a goat. The shepherd has to come close to them to divide them. Let's look at verse 31 together. It says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. He, he will show that he is the true king, that he has authority over all things. Now, this is what's interesting. Verse 32 it says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate one from the other as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Now, what's interesting about this is to the Jewish context where Jesus would have first given this, they would have thought, yes, separating sheep from goats, the Jews are the sheep, the non-Jews are the goats. What's interesting about this though is Jesus is saying, no, all the nations will be there. And in all the nations, among all the nations, there will be sheep and there will be goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on his left. You see the picture here? Here's Jesus at the judgment. Who is actually my disciple? Who is actually with me? Now here's the terrifying thing about this passage. Everyone comes thinking that they're a sheep. That's what's so terrifying. Nobody comes thinking, I'm a goat. Nobody comes and says, well, let me just make my way over here to the left because I'm a goat. No, no, they all come thinking that they're of the king. They, they come thinking that they're a sheep. They come thinking they're with the king, that they are doing the right thing. But when the Son of Man comes in glory, who, he reveals who's really with him and who isn't. What's more interesting about this passage is that even the sheep, even the righteous ones, don't realize that they're the righteous ones. You know, when Jesus rewards them, when he says you're righteous, they would say, well, when did we do all that stuff, right? When, did we, when were we so good? When did we serve you? When, would, when did we do all of this for you? They don't realize that the thing that they're doing is so good and so righteous. And this is an important point. It proves that a relationship with God is about something internal and not really about something external. You can read this story and be like, oh, a relationship with God is about doing things for the poor. I got it. I'll just sign up for Bless the City after this. If, if that's your thought, you miss the whole point. No, the, the point is that a relationship with God is about something that's happened inside of you. It's, it's about something that's happened to you. It's, some, it's about something that who you are, less of what you do. Now, we like external, right? External is clear. We, we want something external. And so we come up with all these false gospels, like moralism, right? We say, look, if you just obey the Ten Commandments, or if you just go to Sunday school enough times, or you know, if you just become a good Christian person. And some people's moralism is like, if you just have a good mom, right? Or a good dad or a good grandmother. You know, I talk to a lot of people and say, well, tell me about your faith. They'll be like, well, my grandmother, she's a praying woman. That's their moralism. They're like, well, my grandmother was a good person. Thus, you know, that kind of 
transcends to me, but it's something external. Or people focus on some sort of sacramentalism. You know, I've walked an aisle, right? That's a big one, you know? I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer, right? It's like this super sacrament that if you just repeat these words, your, your soul is made right before God. Yeah, I'm not saying that, obviously, sacraments, moralism, these, are, these things are involved in the Christian life. But, but it's not something external. I want you to hear this. It's not something external that saves you. It's something internal. We, we want external, so we can say, well, I did this, and I did that, and I did that. I mean, some people would be like, I walked the aisle a hundred times, so I'm checked plus, 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 plus. I've heard people say, you know, I've been sprinkled, I've been baptized, I've done all the things, right? I've gotten all the sacraments. Or, you know, I, I never missed a day of church in my life. I never had a drink of alcohol. I never did this. I've done all the things. And so I know that I'm a sheep. And those people that don't do that, they're goats. We like the external. But I think what Jesus is saying, is that, I mean, do you see what's happening? Even the righteous, they're like, when did we do all that? When did we do all that? You know, they don't have the posture of, oh, well, look at the front of my Bible. My, my preacher signed it. I know I'm in. No, they, they don't have that posture. They don't even know. <laughs> they don't even know that they're the righteous. They're just following the Lord. They just love the Lord. And so they're doing the things that the Lord does without even really realizing it. See? And that gets to the second point, which is seeing Jesus. So there is something external. I want to be clear here. What is external is not the grounds for salvation. It's the evidence for salvation. It's showing that something internal has happened, right? So it's not like, well, I, I, I visited three prisons. I fed two hungry people. And, you know, I gave two thirsty people a cup of water. Therefore, I'm good to go. No, no, that, that wasn't, none of that was the grounds. It wasn't like I've checked off the list. It was just the evidence that something had happened. As I said, they didn't even realize that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. It was something internal. But the external evidence is, is, is directed toward the broken, the marginalized, the poor, the needy, the least of these my brothers, as the text says. Look at verse 35 with me. Jesus says to the righteous, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. See who he's identifying with here. I was naked. I was sick. You visited me. You clothed me. I was in prison and you came to me. And I can almost hear their tone, right? Hear their tone when they respond because they, they, they're talking to God. They're talking to Jesus. They're talking to the king here. So I can hear them saying, I mean, hear, hear the tone in the text. I can hear them saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When were you thirsty? When were you a stranger? You're God. When were you naked? When were you in need of clothing? When were you in prison? They have no idea. What? What are you talking about, Lord? When did we ever see you in a jail cell? 
And it says, the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, and this is the key phrase, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, and this is so interesting, you did it to me. Notice that he doesn't say, you did it for me. You did it on my behalf. No, when you did this, you did this to me. That's interesting language, isn't it? There's at least two things going on here. First, Jesus identifies with the marginalized. He identifies with the marginalized. You did it to me. There's something going on here that Jesus identifies with the broken, with the poor. Now, some people will say, should, how, much, how much emphasis should we put on the phrase, my brothers, right? So is it just the least of these, my brothers, meaning the least Christians, the, the least of these that are in the family of God, right? I think that's an interesting question. And, and I, I read a couple commentaries this week that talk about this. You know, you know, personally, I don't know that such a dichotomy is really necessary. And, and the reason is the, the door to the kingdom of God, the, the invitation to be a member, to be a brother of Christ, to be a part of the household of Christ is open to all, right? Jesus says, follow me to whoever will repent and believe and follow him. I actually think that Galatians 6.10 is really helpful here. Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are in the household of faith. Jesus identifies with the marginalized, especially those in the household of faith. Jesus identifies with his church. Remember what he said to Saul on the Damascus road? Why are you persecuting me? So Jesus certainly identifies with all of his church, but in this particular way, he, he identifies with the marginalized in the church, and I believe beyond. It's the marginalized. It's the, it's the least in the community. There's something about the people that are that can't defend themselves, that are broken, that Jesus identifies with in a particular way. And we see this all throughout the scripture. And we see this all throughout the ministry of Jesus, the pattern of Jesus' ministry. I want you to hear this. The pattern of his kingdom, the ethic of his kingdom, it's down. It's not up. It's not toward the celebrated. It's toward the forgotten. The pattern of Jesus' kingdom is not toward the popular. It's toward the unpopular. It's not toward the rich. It's toward the poor. It's not toward the strong. It's toward the weak. I mean, don't you see the ministry of Jesus? Jesus left heaven. He left riches. He left glory. He left the throne room of God. And he made himself a servant. He made himself the weakest. Jesus left heaven. And he met us in our, I want you to hear this. He met us in our weakest place. You know, I've been in a, I've been a pastor for 20 years now. I know that's hard to believe because I'm still a very young looking man, but, <laughs> but I'm old and I've been a pastor for 20 years. And you know when, in my experience, you know when people are the most dependent on God and the most prayerful and you know when people are the less, the least in love with themselves, it's when they're experiencing some sort of brokenness. 
It's when they're experiencing loss, pain. It could be something that they've done, right? They're just coming, they're coming to grips with some of their sin or some of their mistake. Or it could just be, they're just, they're sick. Or they're going through a heartache. I found that this is when people, they're the least in love with themselves. They're, 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 they get in tune with God in this amazing kind of way. I want you to hear that. Jesus has this way of meeting us in our worst times. He, he, have us, he has this way of meeting us in our brokenness. It, 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 show, it so shows the direction of his kingdom. He, he identifies with the marginalized. He identifies with the broken. Now, again, the, the, the application of this sermon is not necessarily, okay, I understand, I want to be a sheep, I want to go to heaven, so I'll sign up, I'll give you four Saturdays at Atlanta Mission this year. That's that's not what I'm saying. It's it's, it's if you really are with Jesus, you you see the world as he sees the world. And, and, and And you see the broken, you see the marginalized, and your heart breaks for them. And that brings us to the second point, to be a Christian you know, first of all, Jesus identifies with the marginalized, but the Christian life is indicated by a changed heart. It's a changed heart. Their, their heart is not like the world. Again, the righteous here, they don't even really realize that they're being super righteous. They just have a changed heart. They're just doing what the master would do. They're just loving what the master would love. They're just seeing people that the master sees. They're marching to the beat of a different drum. The gospel has changed their heart. You know, I've said this before. Christianity is the only club that you have to have a bad resume to get into. We don't accept good resumes. You can't become a Christian unless you realize that you are broken before a holy God. You can't become a Christian unless you realize that you need someone to save your own soul. I mean, just think about that. That's kind of a Christianese thing, save our soul, but like, just think about that. You messed up with your own soul. You couldn't even steward your own soul. That's what it takes to become a Christian. Now, you may say, I'm good, but you can't become a Christian. You can use Christian symbols. You can come to Christian worship service, but you can't really be a Christian until you say, I have messed up my own soul, my own life, my own little one precious life that I was supposed to shepherd and steward, I have messed up with. And and you have to, what it means to be a Christian is you have to say, I need a savior. And the good news of the gospel is as broken as we are, as selfish as we are, as wounded as we are, as unlovable as we can be, as stubborn as we can be, as godless as we can be, God in his love for us has sent us a good and perfect savior who who came and he he lived the life that he should have lived. He he lived the life that we were supposed to live perfectly in line with his father. And then in exchange for that, he died the death that we should have died. He, He was willing to meet us in our most horrible place to take on the depths of your sin against the holy God and die before that God in your place. That is this savior. And then he overcame that death in the power of the resurrection. And if you trust in him, you have life with him, life forever with him in his kingdom. If you believe that, if that's actually happened to you, if Jesus has saved your soul, 
if you've entrusted your soul to him, then that changes you. That changes you from the inside. You begin to see the world in a totally different way. You begin to love things in a totally different way. You, you begin to submit to the lordship of Jesus. And you want to be like your Lord. And you want to do what your Lord would do. And you want to love what your Lord would love. You start to value what your Lord Jesus values. Don't you see the sheep and the goats? It's not about what people are doing. It's about what people are. It's about what people love. It's about who people have become. And the evidence that you have been changed by the gospel, the evidence is that you start to see Jesus in the marginalized. Doesn't it make sense though, right? If, if when you met Jesus was in a broken place, doesn't it make sense that you would start to see broken places? Doesn't it make sense that you would start to see need? And doesn't it make sense that you would start giving your life to those kinds of things? Don't you see? The kingdom of the world ignores the poor. The kingdom of the world ignores uh, the outcast. It ignores the foreigner. The, The kingdom of this world, this world only uses the marginalized people when it can manipulate them and control them to some worldly end. And you see that all the time. This world around you, business, politics, they will manipulate all of these kinds of things so that they can use them for their own gain. But Jesus is not like that. In fact, Jesus says, this is where I am most clearly seen. This is actually what I find the most beautiful in the world. And doesn't it make sense? (laughs) Who is Jesus? (laughs) But the one who left heaven he who was rich. And when you know, the Bible says he who was rich, I mean, what is it even talking about? Jesus was rich. He's the creator of all things. He had everything. He who was rich became poor, totally poor, not just physically poor, but, but emotionally poor, spiritually poor. He was forsaken by God. He was hungry. He was a stranger. He was a prisoner. I mean, how humiliating is this? Jesus, the righteous one, died a criminal's death. He was labeled criminal, cursed for you and for you and for me. Don't you see? Jesus is always moving down toward the broken, toward the marginalized. What about us? And here's the question. Are we sheep or are we goats? And the terrifying thing is everybody thinks they're a sheep. But are we? I want to finish looking at this third point, and it's all about loving Jesus. There's a phrase, and we don't use this phrase because it's kind of become, it's kind of used like in this, you know, bad way. It's used as a, term of exasperation or frustration. And so I'm going to try to redeem it a little bit for you today because I really like the phrase. But the, 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 the phrase is, for Christ's sake, I want us to live and do for Christ's sake, for Jesus's sake. That's how I want us to live our lives. That, that's, how, that's how we have to live our lives. You know, as we talk about bless the city, going out, and serving the marginalized, serving the broken. 
We have to live into this or we'll be a goat, <laughs> we'll fail. And you know, this is, this is true of every part of life. You know, whenever I do premarital counseling, I say, you know, you've got to learn to love her. I'm talking to the groom. So you've got to learn to love her for Jesus' sake, for Christ's sake. If you only love her for her sake, then your love will be conditional. On the days when she's a good wife, you'll be a good husband, you'll love her. But on the days when she's a bad wife, you'll justify being a bad husband. If you only love her for her sake, your love will be very conditional because she's not going to be perfect every day. But if you actually love her for Christ's sake, because you love Jesus, who is consistent, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if you love him for his sake, who loves you unconditionally, you'll be able to love her unconditionally. And this is true of every you know, part of our lives. It's true of how we love one another as a church. You know, there's some days where it's easy to love you guys. You know, and like, man, these church members are awesome. Y'all are interesting. Y'all are doing, y'all are inviting me to some fun place. But there's some days where I'm like, these people are totally messed up. And if I only love you for your sake, then you know what? I'll only love the cool ones and the put together ones and the broken ones. I'll say, I got to get away from those people. They're dragging me down. We've got to learn to love one another for Christ's sake, to start seeing Jesus in one another. And I'll really tell you this. You know, you may have signed up last week for a ministry project and you have this vision, you know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to serve these people. I'm going to be the next Mother Teresa. I'll probably be Time Magazine's Man of the Year, you know. And everybody will thank me. I'm going to restore this community and I'm going to do all of this and it's going to be amazing. Let me just tell you, even if you go out just for the sake of that person, because I care about this person, this person's a needy person, you'll really be bad at loving and giving yourself to them because people disappoint you. And I want you to hear this. Broken people, broken people, because they've been hurt so often, they, they struggle to trust you. They think that you're just there to manipulate them so that you can feel better about yourself and go brag to your friends about how nice you were. And so they're not going to respond that well to you. And they're not going to be super grateful like you want them to be. And they're not going to do everything that you tell them to do, even if it's wise and good. Because you know what? They're pretty smart. You realize this person's not doing it for my sake. He's doing it for his sake. But I just say, do it for Jesus' sake. And if you'll go and serve and you'll give and you'll love for Jesus' sake, guess what? You won't be disappointed. Because Jesus loves and serves and gives himself to you unconditionally over and over again. You can never outlove his love. <laughs> and so if, if you love for Christ's sake, in response to his love, and because you love him, oh, then you'll actually be useful. You'll, you'll actually be able to do some good. And you know what? Here's the beauty. You won't even know you're doing good. You'll just think you're following Jesus. You'll just think you'll, you're serving your master who you love, who is good and beautiful. And on the day of judgment, he will say to you, enter into my glory. Enter into my house. Share all that I have. Follow this Lord, this same Lord that on the night that he was betrayed, took bread before his disciples and said, this is my body. 
This bread, it represents my body given for you. He took a cup and he says, this cup, it represents my blood given for you. Don't you see what Jesus has done? He's given, he's given, he's given, he's given. He meets you in the broken places. He meets you in the depths of your sin and he gives himself to you. And if we've really seen that, we will go and do the same. So I can't think of a better way to end this time of teaching than by celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And look, I know that in a sermon like this, there there can be some conviction, some of your goatness, the Lord, by the power of his spirit, is bringing to mind. I have good news for you. Repent and turn to Jesus. Trust anew in his broken body, his shed blood for you. Trust anew in his love for you. Find your life and identity all the more in him. See all the more today that Jesus is your loving Savior and Lord. And follow in his way. And I would invite you, if that's the posture of your heart, to respond by taking these elements today. Now, if today you're here, maybe you're new to the faith, or you're just kind of exploring Christianity, maybe there's an area of your heart that you know is hard right now, you haven't dealt with, it's hard. And, and even my preaching today has made you mad. First of all, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're having this conversation. But secondly, I would just say that the table is not for you today. As when the elements are passed, just let them pass. But, but, but deal with that area of your heart. Pray to God. Ask him to give you vision and wisdom for what is true and right. If you're struggling, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Yeah, pray to God. Ask him to, to help guide you. And, and I'm gonna be standing in the back actually here. Just a few moments. I would love to have a conversation with you. There'll be opportunity later to respond. But, but the response for you is not to, to take the elements. The, the, the elements are for, for those of us today <laughs> who've realized, man, I have got a messed up life. My heart is hard and selfish and I follow the way of the world, but I have a savior who loves me. And my only hope for being a sheep, my only hope for living a life pleasing to God is to love and to trust him, to trust that he has given himself for me on the cross and that there is life in his resurrection. And if that's the posture of your heart today, the table is open. I invite you to respond as we stand, as we sing, and as the elements are passed.